The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good morning. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, California, streaming online at KUCI.org and podcasting on iTunes. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd, the show's engineer. We've enjoyed bringing this show since 2005. Your host is Mari Frank, a local attorney since 1985. She's a certified information privacy professional. Mari's testified many times on privacy issues in Congress and the California legislature. You may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, The O'Reilly Factor, and many more shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Mari, what's our show about this morning? Well, Lloyd, our show this morning is really exciting because we have the Senior Consul and Director of Strategy at the Future of Privacy Forum from Washington, D.C. Joining us, Brenda Leong is a Certified Information Privacy Professional herself. And as I said, she's Senior Consul and Director of Strategy at the Future of Privacy Forum. And she oversees the strategic planning of organizational goals, as well as managing the portfolio on biometrics, particularly with regard to facial recognition, which I, she and I were just talking about, how I worry about that with my iPhone 10. <laughs> she also deals with the ethics and privacy issues associated with artificial intelligence, which also is very exciting, but also a little bit uh, mysterious and scary. Uh, she works on industry standards and collaboration on privacy concerns by partnering with stakeholders and advocates to reach practical solutions to the privacy challenges for the consumer and commercial data uses. So she's a, a, a real mediator when it comes to industry versus consumer issues. And prior to joining and working at FPF, which is the Future of Privacy Forum, Brenda served in the U.S. Air Force, including policy and legislative affairs works from the Pentagon and the U.S. Department of State. And she is a 2014 graduate of George Mason University Law School. You can find out more about her at our website at privacypiracy.org where you see her picture and her bio. And then we link to FPF, that's the Future Privacy Forum.org, so you can find out more about the organization and all the great work that it does. Thank you so much, Brenda, for joining us all the way from the East Coast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Yes. So let's talk about, you know, how how challenging it is to protect personal privacy in the digital age. And is it is it getting worse? Is it getting better? What's going on? Well, that's certainly a big question, and the one that I think is on everybody's mind is, is what does privacy mean as we live more and more of our lives online? 
and that's part of the work we do at Future Privacy Forum is try to work with companies and represent consumer interests and also engage the academics who are putting a lot of thoughtful work and research and um, just time into these ideas for how to adapt all of us into this more digital-based world and how we can protect our privacy in that environment. And I think in the past, we thought about privacy sort of being the idea of keeping secrets or people just not knowing things or things that were only um, within us or our families or our relationships with other friends and um, people. But in this time that we live in now, we see that it tends to be more about control, being aware of what data you're creating with your activities, understanding where it might go or what's being done with it, and having the ability to make sure that it's accurate and make sure that it's being used in ways that you've consented to. Right. That's such a huge issue because I recently had an issue uh, of a divorcing couple where uh, the one party didn't know, but the other party had put a very tiny camera <laughs> in the bedroom uh, after they were separated. So this is, you know, this is, we're talking about every kind of privacy there, you know, surveillance, um, the right to consent or not consent. It's, uh, it's just, it's so easy now to surveil people. It's easy to, gra- you know, capture, like I was saying with my iPhone, to capture my facial recognition. And I don't know who might get access to it, who might use it for some ulterior purpose, right? So it's, it's a crazy time now. And, and thank God you're working on this. (laughs) 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 But okay, so let's talk a little bit about machine learning. That's a, that's a whole nother issue too. And how's it different than other tech uh, developments? Well, so machine learning is one of the ways that scientists, data scientists, computer programmers are working on developing artificial intelligence. And essentially, machine learning is something that takes an algorithm or a series of algorithms and builds them into a process where they can sort of feed themselves. They can run a series of instructions, get a set of outputs or information, and then use that information back into the process to sort of adapt and we use the terminology learn from what has happened through the first round. And it can get very complex. You know, I don't understand it all. I'm not a computer scientist, but you can really include a lot of different layers and connections between these algorithms and make it really pretty impressively amazing. And this is what drives things like um, IBM's Watson that, you know, can win on Jeopardy or AlphaGo that can beat the world's best Go player and things like that. So it's in very particular areas right now that it's had a lot of success. Um, Some of the things that I think people might start to see or appreciate um, for the average person more are um, things like instant translation where you can have an app on your phone or a um, feature through Google on your phone or, or others that you can just hold it up to a sign while you're traveling abroad and it's in a language, maybe even an alphabet that you don't know or recognize and it will immediately reflect to you what that sign says, this direction to a city or to a um, particular event or something. Um, and and that's great. One, <laughs> that's great if yeah, you don't understand exactly. the language, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, and, and translation in a bigger sense um, where we can have information available to people who speak different languages. You know, so much of the world's 
uh, information, particularly on some of these technology issues, is in English or English and a few other languages. Um, to make that available to people in other that speak other languages, maybe less commonly spoken by a smaller number of people, these programs have been very successful at being able to um, learn through these machine learning programs how to accurately translate this in a way that, like, to have a human sit down and translate all of these websites or all of these academic papers or all of these books would just take forever if there were even enough translators to be able to do it. So those are kind of some of the features and benefits that we start to see from machine learning that could really actually improve, um, you know, regular people's lives. Right. So do you, re I don't know if you're young enough to have ever seen even maybe a rerun of 2001, a face, uh, you know, Space Odyssey, where Hal is, you know, learning and learning and more learning, and then he kind of takes over the ship. <laughs> sure, yeah. sure, absolutely. And, it's, um, it's, and that is kind of a scary thing, huh? I mean, is that something, that as more, as the machine becomes smarter and smarter, and then they realize that we're not so smart or that we we don't always have such great emotional <laughs> intelligence, right? <laughs> that's right, that's right. And, of course, there have been, there have been other movies since then, Her right. and... Ex Machina and some other ones where people are, are, you know, positing what it will be like when there's what's considered, what, what's generally called a general artificial intelligence, meaning, right. meaning something that can be an expert in a lot of things and act and interact more like a human. Right. Um, and it can be a pretty creepy thought experiment <laughs> to imagine that going wrong, whether it's Skynet and Terminator or whatever. Right, um, right, I think right. the most important thing to realize is that we are so far away from that at this point, even though people are very excited about the progress we're being, that's being made and where there's a lot of amazing things going on, uh, there are some boundaries that, as of yet, even the most sophisticated and, and forward-thinking uh, computer scientists uh, have not developed even theories for ways right. we're going to we're going to reach those kind of points. So that's not something that's really about to happen, right? But um, I I, I, I think that was so long ago, you know that that <laughs> people, was, you know was. what I mean? And everybody said, "Oh, that'll never happen." You know what I mean? It was just such fantasy. But so, and that was like the first movie that I saw that was like that. But I have seen other movies later. But that one, even so long ago, you know, like. What is that like? Almost fifty years ago, or something like that. <laughs> and seeing that, I remember just being really young and watching that, and going, "Oh my God, that that could never happen." And and now I think, well, you know what? It really could happen. As I'm sitting, yeah. you know, telling Alexa what to do, and then you know, we're watching the you know the Olympics, and and somebody, and then they had some advertisement for Alexa, and they said Alexa, and she woke up. You know, what do you want? <laughs> and it's like. <gasps> Oh my God, that's too freaky. Alexa is like waking up for all this stuff. So yeah, I mean, it's yeah. wonderful. It's fun. But I think there's really kind of a dark side to all this as well, isn't there? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and by saying that I don't foresee it in the near term doesn't mean it's not worth thinking about or being um, ready to sort of deal with those questions because better to think of them now while we're still in the development stage. Right. Um, but even with the technologies that we have, yes, there are a lot of people that are thinking about and struggling with the ethical issues around even the levels of machine learning and artificial intelligence that we have 
today or, or that we can foresee in the really near term. So, for example, automated car, um, autonomous cars. Right. You know, cars without a, a human driver making decisions in the moment. So are there going to be controls where you can set standards or, you know, have your own preferences reflected in some way in how the car drives or will that be set by the manufacturer? And, you know, when it's an emergency situation and the car has only bad choices to make, which of those becomes the least bad in that moment and things like that. So these are real questions that that do have to be answered today uh, in terms of some of the choices that we're making. And they're not easy. And there are a lot of, you know, a lot of smart people thinking about them and talking about them. Exactly. And it's just like, you know, we've talked before, you know, on this show many times about, you know, integrating privacy and security into the architecture of whatever, you know, product or service you're creating so that you, like you said, you think ahead of time and you prepare for it. Otherwise, you end up with some real problems with what is going to happen. I know a lot of attorneys talk about if there's a car accident and it's an, uh, you know, an autonomous car, you know, who are you going to (laughs) sue? You know, (laughs) that's what they think about. Like, who are we going to sue? Are we going to sue the manufacturer? Are we going to sue... Uh, they're the software people who maybe had a glitch. What what is it that we're going to do? So yeah, I mean it's it's pretty crazy. Well, how about how do what does this all mean really for the protection of personal information? How does machine learning really you know interact with that? So that's that is a really big challenge in in machine learning. Machine learning, as as we've been talking about, can give us some very real benefits and enable some. Um, products or services or features that we probably really value and would love to have, but machine learning is all built on really large data sets, and sometimes those data sets can be fairly anonymized or the, the information that's needed, to, it's what's called the training set, the training data for the machine learning program. You feed it enough pictures of cats in enough contexts and sizes and shapes and colors and backgrounds and everything else, eventually it learns how to identify a cat all on its own, but it takes thousands, millions of, of data sets to do that. Now, pictures of cats, that's okay. That's not too threatening to anybody, including the cats. Um, but if that's all based on people's personal data in some way, whether it's behavioral data or shopping data or geographic location or whatever it might be, uh, it starts to be more concerning. And so there are data scientists who work with how to minimize the amount of personal identification of the data that's in there. But, of course, in order to facilitate specific systems, it might have to be there in order to get some of the outputs they need. And so you have to have other privacy and security controls in place um, for the researchers themselves, for whoever is supplying and and controlling those data sets. Um, And it's a really big challenge. It's definitely one of the things that's hard to do with the traditional privacy controls where we talk about minimization of the data we needed and destroying data when it's no longer needed for its initial purpose and things like that is harder to do in this machine learning environment because we need those data sets to enable the features uh, that we want. Yeah, and do, you know, how do we build in choice and opt-in and, you know, how, how do we do that? Well, I mean, there it, it is. It is definitely um, a challenge, and in different contexts, it's sometimes harder than others. 
Um, I'll give you an example, though, in all of the sort of companies that have come in the last few years within the last decade that do commercial testing of your genetic data um, and give you a, a genetic readout of either your ancestry and where your, your families came from or maybe what some of your health propensities are, things like that, and people are really interested in that and so they submit it. When they do that, they agree to a certain set of terms and a certain amount of things to be done with that data just you know, by engaging and buying the testing service. But most of those companies also have a secondary step, its own separate consent. It's not included in the basic product. You don't have to do it in order to get your DNA tested, where they say, do you also consent to have your genetic data loaded into um, research databases that will be used for broad-scale medical evaluation and testing, like research, basically, right, right, right. where you can start to see trends. And it's not about testing back to you and your particular heart condition or whatever it might be, but it's about the knowledge that we can gain by having um, the broad amount of data that that might give us. And um, interestingly, about 70-some percent of the people who buy these commercial products agree to that. Um, it's a very clear, separate notice, uh, and they have to provide a specific consent for that. And the fact that about 30% don't means it's a real thing that, that some people choose not to do. Um, but that, I think that's a good example of how we can ask people as opposed right. to just assume or take their data um, to do secondary things with it. That if you ask them and explain to them what the potential benefits are, some of them will say, yes, I think that's a good thing. I want to participate. Right. So what about security breaches? What about if some if that the databases are stolen or you know somehow shared or somehow exposed? I mean, uh, that's the thing that would worry me. Even if they're saying we're going to anonymize it or whatever they're going to do. I mean, what about that? The so, uh, yeah, security breaches are scary, I think, for all of us. Um, right. Everybody who had their credit score stolen recently or people whose, whose personal data was in the government systems back at the OPM breach, um, data security is, is, you know, its own very specialized um, technological skill set and priority and as fast as hackers learn their way into something, then the security professionals design new protections and systems for that, and, and people are working on new things all the time. But, you know, I, I, I can't say that that worry is ever going to go away because yeah. as long as there is some benefit to be gained from it, there will be people who want to get it, you know, illegally or illicitly. Uh, but there's always new things being addressed, too, things, things like blockchain, which is not at all, I think, the silver bullet for every possible problem that it's sometimes talked about for, but uh, it is a really unique way to approach some of the problems with security and just the idea of people thinking in new and different ways about it and, and our technology is always advancing. Um, I think we're going to continue to see innovative and creative solutions for that. Yeah. I know my son wanted me to do something like that, Ancestry.com or something, and... Um, he wanted to give his DNA, and I said, gee, I, I really don't like that idea, and I'm not going to give mine, and if you give yours, then you're pretty much giving mine anyway, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> I wasn't happy about it. I don't think he did, but because um, I think he would have told me, but I said, you know, I just don't have a good feeling about it. I just, I know it sounds like it would be fun and interesting to find out, but at the same time, I just don't want people getting my DNA and 
then of course I worry about like, well, if somebody had my DNA, how could that be used against me? Could, could somehow that get, you know, shared with insurance companies in the future, even though they say they're not allowed to do that, you know, things happen. <laughs> Murphy's law. So right. I guess, you know, being in the privacy field, you start thinking about all the terrible things that could happen, especially when you've seen <laughs> them happen, <laughs> that you are probably, you know, when you said 70% of the people say, okay, I don't think they even think about that there could ever be a security breach. They trust this company and maybe trust them to the point that, they're just oblivious to what could happen. That's interesting. And, and that's certainly possible. There's there's people who probably think about it more or with less uh, detail yeah. and, and projecting what might happen in the future. Um, and I think just as, as, as things have always been, even before we were as digital and as technological as we are now, it takes a variety of protections to give us trust or a feeling of confidence in something. Right. So yeah. I, don't, I don't think the... You know, insurance companies or employers or things like that are, are the most likely to benefit from a from a theft or a security breach. But there is always the worry of actual sharing. And so, yeah. if the company says our policy is not to share, then you know, first of all, we want them to say that. Um, we also want them to have. We want a mechanism to hold them accountable for that, whether it's contracts or other legal um, restraints. We want laws that protect us that say no matter how you got that information, insurance company, you can't make right. You right. know, um, charges based on pre-knowledge of things. Um, and so it, it it takes all of that. It takes you know technologically protecting the data, but it also takes the system as a whole with protections built in for people uh, that make it fair and, and equitable. Yeah. And that's not always the technology. That's sometimes as much the legality and the process right. um, that we need to have that in place. I got to ask you, when you were in the Air Force, um, were you a techie? <laughs> were you, you know, okay. what kind of things did you do? Did you do things like this with privacy? And- I did not. Huh. I did not. I was not a lawyer. I went to I went to law school after uh, the Air Force, and I was not huh. doing particular technical things. I was a, a personnel specialist, which means I dealt with people's assignments and jobs and careers and awards and um, oh, this training like fun. and things like that. <laughs> yeah. It was. It was a lot of fun, but but it was very different from what I do now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I was just thinking because you it said in your bio that you were doing you know policy and legislative work from the Pentagon. So I wonder what, what that included, if it included any kinds of things of privacy. Because, like, when you're in the military, they know everything about you, right? So, you know. Uh, yeah, they pretty much did. <laughs> they, they pretty, my life was pretty much an open book for, for the military. And I'm still, I'm sure it's still in a record over at DOD somewhere on somebody's computer, something's right. computer somewhere. Right, <laughs> right. Let's talk a little bit about biometrics, since I think that is so fascinating. On one hand, you know, we've learned that the social security number is so easy to replicate. You know, you just say, this is my social, and I've dealt with literally thousands of identity theft victims whose social security number was used by someone else. Let's talk about the the issues of biometrics and the protections and, of course, the the dangers of false positives, false negatives, and and theft. I didn't mean to put that all into one thing at once, but just kind of give us an <laughs> overview. We'll talk about each one of those, but let's just kind of do, explain to my audience a little bit about biometrics. They're, they're used to it on their phones, right, already. Right, 
Right. So, um, of course, it's difficult to talk about all biometrics at once as one common thing, since that they can vary greatly between fingerprints and iris scanners and facial recognition. Right. But, right. But in general, uh, a biometric system is not so much taking an image of whatever it is, the fingerprint or the face, as it is creating a template. There is, again, we're back to that uh, concept of algorithms that run a program that builds a template off of, like, the cross points and what's called the minutiae, the little details in your fingerprint, or the spacing and structure of your face, the distance between your eyebrows or the height of your ears or things like that. And each one is different. A lot of those are actually, I don't want to say each one, in general, they can be very different. Yeah. Um, they are, in many cases, proprietary intellectual property that is the particular algorithm that collects and creates that template. Mm-hmm. And so it's a template that's a digital file that's then encrypted and then stored. So it's it's usually a little bit more involved than most people think of. It's not just sort of taking a picture of you and putting a picture in a file somewhere. And so right. just because I can see your face and have your picture doesn't necessarily mean that I can get into whatever it might have you, like whether it's your phone that you were talking about or anything else um, for a number of reasons. And in addition to, to that sort of the technological process of it, they are always building in... Pers- um, Factors to protect against what's called spoofing, which is trying to fake your way in by having, by pretending you have a different fingerprint or right. holding up a picture or even a mask of someone else's faces. So they right. include things called liveness detection. Um, you might need to blink or speak um, on your finger. They can actually uh, evaluate how warm it is or check for blood flow things like that, that are all part of the process to ensure that it's a real finger or a real face and that it's the right one um, before they collect it and compare it to the template that they have. Right. So the advantage is that it's unique to us. You know, that's the advantage. So let's talk about some of the concerns with regard to privacy and biometrics. Absolutely. Absolutely. like anything else, it's data, and so it can be uh, shared or stored or breached. Um, some of the protections for that are things like on your phone, the example you gave earlier, your fingerprint on your old iPhone or your facial recognition on your new iPhone are stored on the phone. They are not stored in some central server in the cloud where somebody can come get a database of all the iPhone 10 users' facial templates. Um, they would have to somehow emulate your face and have your phone in order to be able to even attempt that because it's kept locally. So so that's one of the privacy protections uh, that's employed in a lot of situations. Um, in general, the, uh, the concept of the biometric is frequently employed as part of a two-factor authentication. Right. system, which means it's combined with something else, like you have the phone right. and you are your face, you are yourself. Right. Um, you can't just enter any phone with, with that. It has to have already been set up there. Um, or it can be in conjunction with a password where you have to have both your fingerprint and something else if it's a, a really secure environment um, or things like that. So all of those sort of additional process issues are, or protections are part of the privacy, like what you were saying earlier, the privacy by design, building it in from the beginning and making sure that's a consideration as you develop the biometric. 
Right. So what about, I think it's probably getting better, but you know, there are false positives and false negatives. Sometimes I can't get my phone to work with my face. So then I, <laughs> I have to put in my, my password number, which is okay. Cause then I've always got that. But, um, what about that? About the false yeah, positives? Yeah, that's definitely a, a definitely a concern, and um, those are those are things that can be set to certain thresholds. So, in some cases, you might want to err. The the system might be designed to err more on false positives, or it might be designed to err more on false negatives. Mm-hmm. Um, in the sense of how sensitive it's being set, and and that all depends on which one carries the greatest risk. If it's, for example, physical access to a really secure building, maybe a government, you know building or something, um, they're going to be, they're going to be more willing to live with somebody who should be able to get in, not being able to get in right away or, or being forced to give it, like you said, put in a password instead or do some additional proof because their biggest concern is keeping the wrong people out. Um, in some other case, like your phone, for example, they can probably set it a little bit looser. Now they don't want just anybody who happens to look slightly like you to be able to pick up your phone and, and get into it. And of course, they make sure that it's not anything like that. Um, But at the same time, the bigger risk to them or the bigger concern for the phone manufacturer is uh, a consumer being frustrated by having to do it too many times, like you just described. Right. So it's just easier to just put in the the number. Yeah. Would you believe we are out of time, Brenda? It's amazing. I mean, we have been speaking. I know. We've been speaking with Brenda Leong, and she is a privacy expert. She is Senior Counsel and Director of Strategy at the Future of Privacy Forum. So just give your website, and believe it or not, it's time to go. All right. Well, thank you so much for having me today. Our website is www.spf.org, and we would love to have you come and visit us there. Oh, great. And we will have you back again. So thank you so much, Brenda. You take care. Thank you, too. Okay. All right. Mm Bye-bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. and visit our website at privacypiracy.org. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.